Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, if you could grab hold of a, a church Bible, that would be helpful. There's um, also a handout amongst all the papers you were given. It should say uh, Trinity and Mission Talk 1 at the top of it. And then you're, if in your Bibles you could turn uh, back to the passage we uh, actually had read to us earlier um, from Matthew chapter 3. Uh, it'll be up on the screen in a moment as well and I'll read it out. It'll be helpful to have that open because we'll be looking around at some of the surrounding verses as well. Uh, but as we do that, um, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you reveal yourself to us. And uh, we're going to experience that in many ways today. You reveal yourself to us through the scriptures. We thank you for the uh, privilege of being able to experience that right now. Uh, Thank you that in the passage we're going to be looking at, you reveal yourself as Trinity. And so we pray that that would change us. We pray, especially in this session, that that would take away our sense of despair and hopelessness in the kind of world we live in. Please help us, uh, we pray, as we engage with this, uh, to open our hearts and minds uh, to change and to hear you clearly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read these verses uh, to you again. So this is Matthew chapter 3 and verses uh, 13 through to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Uh, The phrase, uh, the shadow of death, is a powerful little phrase used by the prophet Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, he uses it to describe what the people of his day were under and experiencing lives overshadowed by sin and death and because of their particular rebellion at that time, the threat of God's imminent judgment, the valley of the shadow of death. Now we can use it more generally as well as uh, Matthew himself does in Matthew chapter 4, quoting those verses. Now we can use it to describe the human condition more generally. Uh, It's never going to make us popular doing this, uh, describing the world we live in as this world, uh, because I suppose you could say that modern civilization is pretty much based upon hiding from or ignoring or distracting us from the fact that we live in the valley of the shadow of death, that this indeed is the place where we live. It's one of the great observations of the theologian Blaise Pascal is that all our lives are so heavily devoted to distracting us from where we really live. But there are times when no one can ignore the fact that this is where we live. 
So, for example, uh, a few years back now when Hurricane Katrina uh, was heading towards uh, New Orleans, um, it was impossible to avoid the fact that death and destruction uh, was on its way. Uh, But there was a telling moment in the run-up to that happening uh, where someone from a, um, uh, a TV station conducted a radio interview with a meteorologist who was observing the coming of the storm. And she was extremely indignant about what was happening. And uh, her question was, uh, why wasn't something done about this? And there was a long pause in the interview. And uh, the reply, quite a restrained reply, I think, was, Ma'am, do you actually know what a hurricane is? So that feeling of hopelessness as the hurricane draws near that we might feel and are wondering how we're going to survive, um, is a feeling of hopelessness that can um, inflict us at many other times. It can leave us feeling incapacitated, more generally under the shadow of death. I suppose this is the origin of all despair and panic, loneliness. It's that feeling, isn't it, that nobody really cares about our condition. If we do anything in that state... Um, it's probably some act of desperate self-preservation. We become closed in on, in on ourselves. Uh, and if we're consumed by such, such hopelessness as Christians, then the last thing we'll want to do is evangelism or mission. We're so closed in on ourselves in our own condition that we're not going to be reaching out to others. So I want to begin with that sense of hopelessness, and I want us to address that sense of hopelessness, especially in this session, but over these two days, looking at two passages from Matthew's Gospel. And I want to explore whether it will help us to think about mission slightly differently, to think about the Trinitarian shape of mission. So that, if you like, is the overall aim for these talks Uh, that we will be encouraged in missionary zeal by thinking about mission trinitarianly. Now you know that uh, one of the problems when it comes to the Trinity, and we've sort of faced up to this a little bit already today, is that we frequently don't know what to make of the Trinity. Uh, However, I think recently in Christian circles there's been something of a rediscovery of the delights of knowing God as Trinity. I came across this need just last week. I was out in Romania and uh, met a young couple there. And it's very interesting. She'd spent some time in China with Chinese Muslims. And uh, she was brimming over with all sorts of questions about the Trinity. I'm not sure about this, but I think perhaps she thought it might have been convenient. It might be convenient if you in that, in that situation, if you can kind of downplay the Trinity a bit, because it's obviously a big obstacle when you're t- talking to Muslims. But no, it's not possible to do that. And in fact, there are great advantages in delighting in the Trinity, even in the face of such opposition to the doctrine. The Trinity deeply affects how we relate to God. Because he is Trinity, for example, he is not a distant and unknowable tyrant. Uh, Like, you might say, uh, the gods of mythology, or even the God of Islam, for that matter. Um, He's not like that. He's not like the caricature that's painted of him by the new atheists, the distant tyrant. He is, as we're discovering and exploring a little little in the first session, he is intrinsically loving and relational. 
Love doesn't suddenly spontaneously burst into existence at the moment he creates the world. No, it's always been there. And knowing him like this then deeply affects our willingness to relate to him and to trust him and to pray and to enjoy him. And I think there's been a bit of a rediscovery of that kind of delight in recent years, which is a wonderful thing. What I'm wondering in these sessions, though, is that whether we need to rediscover uh, something about God as Trinity when it comes to the whole issue of mission, where we're I'm wondering if a similar transformation might happen if we start to think about mission in a Trinitarian way. And we're going to begin in this session by thinking about God's mission, that is, what he is doing in the world, thinking about his mission Trinitarianly, and then perhaps we shall then see a transformation in the way we approach our mission in the world, what God explicitly calls us to go and do in the world. Now, our method to, to explore these issues is to look at uh, two what you might call Trinitarian passages from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the first is the one I just read, Jesus' baptism in uh, chapter 3. And the second is the Great Commission in chapter 28. Uh, the passage I read at the beginning is, you will have noticed, self-consciously a Trinitarian episode. It's um, the son is baptised as a man by John in the Jordan. The spirit is seen to rest upon him and the father declares his approval. You can't really miss the Trinity in that passage. And then at the end of the gospel, when the specific task that Jesus has done as the servant of the Lord has been completed, uh, he sends his disciples out to make disciples in the world, in the nations, and he instructs them to baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, you cannot miss the Trinity in that passage. Two episodes linked by Trinity, and by some other things too, like baptism, and uh, some other things too. Two episodes which I hope will fan into flame our enthusiasm for mission by taking away hopelessness and doubt. And we begin in Matthew chapter 3 with Jesus' baptism by John. We're not yet talking about our mission in the world. This is very much, however, about God's mission in the world. And that, of course, is where we need to begin. And only then can we see uh, how we can become part of that mission. But to understand what's going on here, we do need to understand first the background problem this episode addresses. And I think we could probably summarise it like this, that the background problem in the Gospel of Matthew is the separation of the heavens and the earth. It's something that's caused by sin and what it's done to the world is to cast the shadow of death on the world we live in. Now you may not have heard it quite put like that before but it's important to realise that each of the Bible writers have their own distinctive ways of telling the Gospel. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of trying to squeeze and bend and harmonise what they say to conform to some uniform description of it, but that's probably a mistake. And uh, this is Matthew's way of describing the background to the gospel. And I've tried to illustrate it in this figure that you've got on your handout and is up on the screen. See, on the one hand, there are the heavens, the heavenly realm. This is where God reigns unopposed. To describe this, Matthew uses the plural term, the heavens. 
very distinctly and purposefully uses the plural, which for some reason I've never understood. That never gets translated as a plural in our English versions. It's a shame, really, because it's Matthew's way of distinguishing the heavenly realm from merely the sky above us. So if he uses the heaven, heaven singular, it usually just means sky. So there's the heavens, and then on the other hand, there is the earth, the earthly realm, which of course God's created and also, in a sense, reigns over. But nonetheless, there's a division between these two realms. It's a division that's created by sin, which means that on this side of the divide, God isn't recognized as he should be, and he doesn't reign unopposed. It's an anomaly at the heart of the universe. The earthly realm is now standing because of sin as a giant lie at the heart of the cosmos because it's shouting out that God does not rule when in fact he does. And because the earthly realm only exists and continues to exist because of God, the creator, uh, that opposition places it in deep peril. It casts a sh- that sin casts a shadow over the earthly realm, the shadow of death and uh, the, the imminence of judgment. God is not going to leave this in this way forever. So these are not physical spaces, as if the heavenly realm was suddenly, suddenly somehow up there in the sky. Uh, you might remember that when Yuri Gagarin, you probably don't remember actually, most of you, first man in space in 1961, some of you might, President Khrushchev made the mocking comment when that happened. Gagarin flew up into space, but he didn't see any God there, as if that was reason for the whole kind of Christian edifice to then collapse. Someone wisely commented at the time that Gagarin had just stepped outside his spacecraft, then he would have seen God soon enough. (laughs) So we've got to get this right. Now, these are not physical spaces that we're talking about in uh, Matthew's gospel. The heavenly realm is not part of the physical universe as we know it. So these are different kinds of spaces. And the important thing to notice here is that they are realms that stand opposed to one another in conflict with one another. But then in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or perhaps we could more accurately translate that. Change your mind. Change your mind about the way the world is, for the kingdom of the heavens is near. This language of the kingdom of the heavens is language which John has taken uh, from the visions in the book of Daniel. Those uh, visions tell us that a time is coming when God, the God who rules unopposed in the heavenly realm, will crush the kingdoms that oppose him in the earthly realm. And that will be a good thing. It will be a reuniting of the heavens and the earth. And John the Baptist is claiming that the kingdom of the heavens is near. That time when God takes this space for his own and reasserts his rule so that it becomes unopposed, that time is near. In other words, as he's preaching, he's saying that if you think things are going to stay the same forever, think again. 
If you think that things are going to remain like uh, they are in this figure here, think again, change your minds about how things are. The coming kingdom of the heavens should urgently impact how you think about things. First of all, that's going to result in action, of course, but first of all, how you think about the world you live in. And you can see in these verses at the beginning of chapter 3, the kind of reaction that preaching provokes. So, for example, verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. You see, when the nearness of the kingdom of the heavens is preached as convincingly as John is preaching it, people really move. In this case, they move all the way to the desert to be baptised. That is, to undergo the kind of cleansing ritual an outsider might go through to become one of God's people. As if to say, we recognise that we don't deserve to be here in God's land. We've gone right out to the edge of the land and we're being baptised. As if to say too, yes, we accept that we have led fruitless lives. As if to say, yes, indeed, we have sins that mean that we stand opposed to God. As if to say, we've changed our minds so we can see that we desperately need to be washed. Uh, But if John is right about the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the rule of God, then surely getting baptised like this is the least that anyone could do when they hear that news. But you can also see in these verses that John's expectation was that the nearness of the kingdom of the heavens means judgment is coming and it is coming soon. In other words, John's thinking about the future the the way we might well expect him to think about the future as a righteous Jew who knew his uh, Hebrew scriptures well. Uh, You can see that in verse 10, for example. The axe is already at the root of the trees, says John. And every tree that does not produce good fruits will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The coming judgment is going to be like an axeman sweeping through an orchard, inspecting the trees for fruit, cutting down and burning the dead and fruitless ones. You can kind of feel the, the terror of it in some ways. The sharp blade of the axe already at the base of the tree. It's cutting into the woods, already marking it, ready for a strike, ready for the axeman to swing and chop. And then the fruitless wood is thrown into the fire. Or again, John says this, verse 12. Uh, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, properly speaking, that should say winnowing shovel, which helps us to understand a little bit better what's going on here. And again, it's very vivid imagery. Uh, There are two piles on this threshing floor. There's one pile of wheat and one pile of chaff. The dry, scaly, useless casings that are already separated from the useful seeds of wheat. But now is the time for the threshing floor to be cleared. So this powerful figure who's coming after John takes up his winnowing shovel and into the barn goes the wheat and into the fire goes the chaff. And we can imagine the whoosh of flame as the chaff burns up. So far as uh, John is concerned, then this is the calm before the storm. It's the moment just before the the dam or the levee breaks. In New Orleans at this moment, those who hadn't got out, I dare say were at this time incapacitated by fear and hopelessness, or perhaps even panicking 
desperately trying to find out whatever shelter they could. But the remarkable thing about Matthew chapter 3 is that Matthew has been setting us up for an enormous surprise. John has been warning us to change our minds about the world and the future. But when we get to the passage where Jesus is actually baptised, we're also challenged to change our mind again. You see, the one John has been expecting arrives, but not in the way he's quite been expecting. He arrives without an axe, without a fire, without a winnowing shovel, and he arrives to be baptised. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. They're very simple words, very familiar words perhaps, but actually breathtaking because John has been saying that the one coming after him will come in fiery judgment, gathering his people, destroying the wicked. But in this very next verse, here he is. John recognises him instantly, but there is no axe, no fire, no winnowing shovel, and this strange request, which seems all wrong, and yet, according to Jesus, fulfils all righteousness. And these are the verses that we're going to be spending the rest of our time looking at this morning a little more closely. And I hope we're going to see that the purpose of these verses is something like this. That we reading this, once we've understood what's happening here, we'll be able to face the future with hope for three things. Because of the willing service of the Son. Secondly, because he is in that empowered by the Spirit. And thirdly, because he is in that perfectly aligned with the loving will of his Father. Face the future with hope because of the willing service of the Son in which he's empowered by the Spirit and perfectly aligned with the loving will of his Father. And facing the future with the the Trinitarian hope that comes from seeing that will be the foundation then for enthusiastic mission. Good, so here we go. Face the future with hope. First of all, because of the willing service of the Son. The willing service of the Son on behalf of sinners. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you to come, come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And then John consented. So Jesus has not come with fire or an axe or a winnowing shovel, at least not yet. Matthew's not trying to tell us that John got things wrong about the coming judgment, but he does want to correct us when it comes to the timing of that judgment and what has to happen first. But what has he come to do then, if not bring judgment at this moment? Well, according to these verses, it's to be baptised. But why? Uh, When the people went out to the Jordan to get baptised, They did it for a very specific reason. Matthew highlights it for us. They got baptised in order to confess their sins. So is that what Jesus is doing? Well, no, of course not. You can see that they both know that this is in some way the wrong way round. I need to be baptised by you, says John. He knows. Jesus doesn't need to confess his sins. He doesn't need to get baptised. If anyone does, John does. It ought to be the other way around. 
all a bit of a puzzle. So we look at the, uh, the commentaries and we pick out the big three-volume ICC commentary on Matthew, uh, which lists eight options here and can't decide between them. Uh, Don Carson, in his commentary, says uh, the options are legion. The options are legion. But then, slightly disappointingly, he lists only three of them. Uh, the third one's the right one, apparently. But you'll notice in these verses that Jesus actually does tell us why he's come to get baptised. He does actually say why he's come to do this. And it's not because he needs washing from sin himself. And it's certainly more than just endorsing what John has been doing in his baptism. The real reason is there for us in verse 15. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. This is why Jesus is getting baptised. Now, we can still be a bit puzzled here, I guess, because we can be tripped up by that word, righteousness. Uh, basically, I think we have to say in Matthew's Gospel, to be righteous, we can summarise it like this, is to be aligned with the will of God. Uh, those two things are virtually synonymous in Matthew's Gospel. To do the will of God, to be aligned with the will of God, and to be righteous are pretty much the same thing. That's actually pretty much true across the whole of the Bible, as it happens. Um, it's helpful to know that when Matthew is using this word, uh, he's using it with a particular emphasis compared to other writers, I guess. So when Matthew uses the word, the issue he has in mind is, is not really where this righteous relationship comes from. It's much more about what it looks like, much more about its content. So when we read the Apostle Paul using the word righteousness, his, his concern and emphasis is on, perhaps on a different issue. How we enter into that righteous relationships in the first place. But when Matthew uses the word, it is all about what it looks like to be aligned with the will of God. And it's interesting. We already know uh, what the will of God is uh, in in some ways, uh, which we'll come to in a moment. But for the moment, we can just say that Jesus is being baptised because his you might put it this way, his father wants him to be. It is his father's will that he should be baptised as a man. So to fulfil righteousness, to demonstrate an alignment with the will of God, he must get baptised. And as I was beginning to say, even at this early stage in the gospel, we already know a little bit more about what, Jesus, what God wants, what the father wants Jesus to do. We already know from earlier in the gospel that he wants Jesus to save his people from their sins, to be God with them. You can see that if you glance over to chapter 1 and verse 21. That's why he's named Jesus. So we already know that the will of God in this case. And to fulfill that will, at this point, Jesus gets baptised. Now put that all together, and I think that explains what Jesus is doing here. He has come... We already know to save sinners. He is, therefore, as he gets baptised, joining with the ranks of those who came to the Jordan to confess their sins. He is getting alongside them, just as he will do later in the Gospel when he gets alongside the tax collectors and sinners. And it's that identification with sinners that's going to be what finally connects those sinners 
to the new life and forgiveness he has come to bring. So in the end, this is a wonderful thing, not a confusing thing at all, because as I puts it, Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. He is numbered with the transgressors. This is a self-conscious act of numbering himself with the transgressors so that he may bear the sin of many. So this is a little bit like the moment in an adventure story when the hero of the story first takes up the challenge to save the day. Most adventure stories do in fact have a moment like this. You know, a damsel is in distress somewhere, so brave Sir Lancelot takes on the quest to save her. Even Bond films have a moment like this. Bond goes into M's office to receive his assignment, his mandate for the rest of the film. You might say, it's a little bit like that. Except, it's only a very little bit like that, as we'll come back to later. However, we can be sure, even at this moment, that Matthew is showing us Jesus taking on a mandate from his father. He's taking on a mission. The task he takes on is the task that we really need in the world to save people from their sins. And this act of baptism, in this act of baptism, he's identifying himself, numbering himself with the transgressors so that he can do that. But this is also a mission in which the Son is empowered by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God to bring new life, new creation from the heavens into the earthly realm. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Now, let's step back a bit. When the people were baptised, so the people are going out um, to the Jordan River to be baptised, and I imagine they would have climbed up the bank out of the water, rather wet and dripping. And what? Well, nothing much really, apart from feeling a bit wet. They might well have wondered whether anything had really changed through that action. Were they really better prepared for the kingdom of the heavens at that point? Were they better prepared for the coming storm of God's wrath and judgment? Perhaps it felt to them at that time rather like preparing for a hurricane by putting up an umbrella. But when Jesus is baptised, he climbed up, up, up the bank out of the water And immediately something very dramatic happened. Something which reveals to us the true significance of what he's just taken on. And the first, there are two parts to it, but the first part of it is this. And behold, says Matthew, the heavens were split open to public view. And Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Now let me very quickly say, that it's not at all here that uh, Jesus did not have the Spirit previously, because we know from Matthew chapter 1 that when Mary became pregnant, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But as Jesus publicly and personally takes on the task of saving people from their sins, as he gets baptised, this is also the moment where his Spirit-enabled power to give life is publicly confirmed from the heavens. And it's very dramatic, isn't it? The symbolism is very powerful. The gulf, that gulf between heaven 
the heavens and the earth is split open visibly at this point. It does really seem like the kingdom of the heavens is on its way, breaking free. The spirit descends and rests on him. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, the Lord puts his spirit on his servant. Here the spirit confirms, I think, the servant's power as the life giver. In many ways it's a complex mix of images, it's not so easy to untangle. There's water and there's spirit. You'll know from from Ezekiel that water cleanses dead hearts, spirit breathes life into dead bones. And uh, this spirit is hovering over the waters, rather like uh, the spirit hovered over the waters of the creation in Genesis chapter 1. Or the dove hovered over the, the waters of the sort of recreation that happened after the flood. So there's a whole complex of images going on here. But uh, we can bring them together, I think, and say that Jesus has indeed taken on the mandate of the servant of the Lord to save his people from their sins. And as he takes on that task to save them from the shadow of the death, he has the divine authority and power to bring both forgiveness and life by the Spirit. Again, it's rather like that moment in an adventure story where the hero is equipped. So Sir Lancelot gets his sword... And his horse, James Bond, visits Q Branch. Except, of course, it's only a very little bit like that, as we'll come back to later. So where have we got to? Uh, This is all about facing the future with hope. Hopelessness being driven away for those living under the shadow of the death. Because of the willing service of the Son, as he takes on this mandate from his father to bring forgiveness of sins as the servant of the Lord. And in that he's going to be empowered by the spirit of the Lord. And finally we, have, we can face that future with hope because the son is perfectly aligned with the loving will of his father. There is a voice from the heavens. And behold, says Matthew, a voice from the heavens declaring to us, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And if we know our Bibles well, we'll be hearing at least two very strong echoes from the Old Testament at this point. The first of those are put on your handout from Psalm 2, verse 7. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then Isaiah 42, verse 1 again, as it's quoted in, in Matthew 12. Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. The Father declares his approval of Jesus as the son of Psalm 2. You might remember the son of Psalm 2 is going to crush the rebellious nations. This is the kind of son, I guess, that um, John the Baptist was expecting. The kind of activity that he was expecting right now. But the dominant note, uh, if you like, the, uh, the correction to that happening all at once is that the Father declares his approval of Jesus as his servant, the one who will serve his people first. So there's a sense of celebration in these verses, isn't there? It might be hard for us to untangle the complex arrangement of images and allusions, but the Spirit has descended to 
to signify the life-giving power of this great champion, his divine power to give life to those under the shadow of death. And then finally here, if we know the book of Isaiah well, we'll be hearing the father overjoyed that his son has taken on the role of the servant of the Lord. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You might say it's a bit like the moment in a medieval tournament when the king asks who is worthy to act as his champion and nobody steps forward until his own son steps forward and the whole scene erupts in celebration. Except that, again, it's only a little bit like that. You see, our problem with all these things is that nothing can really compare to what's happening in these verses. Uh, The illustrations I've used, a hero taking on a quest, a hero being equipped by someone, the hero who is the son acting as a champion for his approving father. Uh, They help in some way, I guess. They perhaps capture some of the sense of drama and adventure that's beginning here. Uh, The story that culminates Uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel. But in many ways they don't accurately reflect what's really going on here. Because of course the the characters in an adventure story are, are, are too separate. They have too much potential to be misaligned with one another. They have too much potential to be at odds with one another, to be an accurate reflection of what's happening in these verses. Now, as Mike was mentioning earlier, this was a a favourite passage for Augustine. He was very much struck by this distinction between the persons of the Trinity here. Uh, In one sermon he observes, the three are, as it were, separated in an extraordinary way, in places, in offices and in works. But he is also careful to observe in that sermon that this is not because they are divided one from the other. Now, while it well may, may well be that the persons are exhibited to us separately, their operation and purpose is inseparable. That is, within them there is a perfect unity of purpose. This is... In essence, one God with a single purpose, hence the unity of purpose. But for our benefit, the three persons are in this instant exhibited separately to show us something about the kind of God who is acting uh, to save the world. Uh, To show us something of the love and care and concern that the persons of the Trinity have for one another and the care and concern they have for what each one of them is doing. We were thinking about it earlier, the son submits to the father's will out of love. Um, in everything he does, the spirit will be working. And in everything they do, the father's loving will is satisfied. And because we're given this glimpse, and because we know that the task that the son has taken on at this point is a task for us, as sinners, then we can be assured that that mutual love and care and purpose that we see exhibited here will then pour out into that task. And it's that realisation of the outpouring of God's love into the task that the Son has taken on 
That is what is capable of extinguishing all our desperate hopelessness. Extinguishing it with a genuine hope, uh, acting like light shining in under the shadow of death. You see, at the beginning, uh, from the overflow of his love, God created the world. Likewise, from the overflow of his love, he breaks through that barrier we were talking about between the heavens and the earth to deal with sin through his son, to bring life by his spirit, to fulfill his fatherly will, to bring the creation to its proper completion in the kingdom of the heavens. That is what's being revealed to us here. And it is a most amazing thing. And I've been beginning here and saying these things because all talk about mission must start with the mission of God through Jesus Christ. That's why we've begun here with what God is doing in the world. And here we're seeing that that mission has a distinctly Trinitarian shape to this. And I began this morning by talking about... uh, the incapacity or desperation that's created by hopelessness. The hopelessness felt by people struggling under the shadow of death. It's a hopelessness that's made even worse, of course, by knowing that God is coming to restore the recognition of his rightful rule. The more we know about the coming judgment of God, the more hopeless we will feel. Now, we have to ask the question, would a non-Trinitarian God be able to crush such hopelessness? Well, it's very hard to see quite how. Why would such a God care for us? Especially care for a world marred by sin. He certainly wouldn't be able to demonstrate his care in the way he's able to demonstrate it here in Matthew chapter 3 in this baptism scene. If such a God was still interested in the creation, how could we be sure that his interest in it was a loving interest? That he wasn't just out to get from the creation what he could for himself. How could we even be sure that such a God could do anything about the broken world, apart from perhaps shout at it from a distance? But the God who is Trinity can surely deal with hopelessness. The sun can be with us, behind enemy lines, if you like, to deal with sin. The spirit can break through that barrier between the heavens and the earth with new life and new creation. The father can declare his loving will and so guarantee the divine determination to bring the whole enterprise of creation and redemption to completion. That is his will, and he will do it. In other words, since God is Trinity, there is hope. Since God is Trinity, there is light in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are too quick to hide ourselves from the reality of the kind of world we live in. We distract ourselves 
from it with all sorts of things, distractions. We ignore it. We will not face up to the fact that we live in a world deep and dark under the shadow of death. And the more we realise uh, your right, righteousness and our sin, the more we realise the threat of coming judgment. But Father, we thank you that you have not left us in this hopeless state. And we particularly think, thank you for this demonstration of what you are like, so that that sense of hopelessness can be cast away. We pray, pray that we would dwell on this deeply and delight in you, the Trinitarian God who acts powerfully to deal with sin and cast away hopelessness, bringing light into darkness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.